Well, when Apple uh, purchased the rights to the show A Charlie Brown Christmas, have you seen that one? Right? When they purchased the rights a few years ago to purchase not only that, but the rest of the uh, Charlie Brown franchise, uh, if you've wondered why it shows up on Apple TV now, uh, there was a, a caveat inside their contract that said they had to make it available publicly to a wider audience in, in the same way that it had been aired every year since it had come out. And so uh, they'd have a weekend in early December where they, they made it available for everybody to watch, which wasn't on my schedule. My family and I recently watched the Charlie Brown Christmas. We found it on Vimeo. So if you're looking for it, someone's uploaded it there and you can watch the whole thing commercial free. <laughs> but we recently watched a Charlie Brown Christmas and, and seeing that again, that it, it has aired annually since 1965, I'm imagining that quite a few here have seen it, that you've seen that special. Unless, <laughs> did anybody watch it in 1965? I, I, my understanding is that when people tuned in to watch it, it was the number two show in the time slot. Uh, Bonanza beat it out, so I wanted to see how many people were actually watching Bonanza instead. Others showed up at CBS to watch it. You can tell I read a little bit about Charlie Brown Christmas this week. People showed up to watch it. I wonder how many people were uh, kind of angered because the show that it replaced that night, The Munsters. So maybe, maybe you tuned in to see The Munsters and you ended up having to watch Charlie Brown Christmas. But it was the number two show that year. So I'm imagining that a lot of people, since all those years, have seen it. But you remember there's a scene in there where Charlie Brown is exasperated. And he finally asks, uh, after uh, seeing uh, these different expressions from his friends, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Remember when he says that? He gets all exasperated there. It's a good question. Of course, again, it stems from the confusion that is represented uh, from his friends. They show all kinds of different uh, ideas of what Christmas is all about. Even his own dog, Snoopy, has a kind of a commercialized view of Christmas and competing in the light show. And so his friend Linus steps up to the challenge, is how that story goes. He moves to the center stage, the house lights dim, spotlight focuses in on him, and then he begins to recite the birth narrative from Luke's gospel. He recites Luke chapter 2. Now, we're left to think that this recitation here answers the question. That somehow Charlie Brown's question of, of, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about, that this is what Christmas is all about. If we can just tell the Luke chapter 2 story, that that's going to suffice all the different questions that someone might have. But somehow, that question still lingers. That question of what is Christmas all about, even when you hear that story from Linus, you think, what is it all about? Does that actually satisfy my questions. Of course, there's been a great deal of holiday films and television specials that have sought to answer this very same question. I read a stat this last week that said this year alone, there was over a hundred Christmas movies that were on all the streaming platforms and different television that were new, that were new and brought, brought forward this year. So there's a lot of different film and television specials, and they've sought to answer that question. But most of them have taken a decidedly different direction than Linus here. In fact, Hazel Pritchard observes an article for the Oxford student. She writes, the majority of Christmas movies revolve around the same themes of love, family, and goodwill towards mankind. Traditional Christmas time values. We might also add here, there are other themes that show up in these films. Christmas miracles, whatever those might be in different forms. Uh, transformations of persons, that certainly shows up and was popular uh, in the 19th century as well as themes servicing familiar Christmas caricatures. How many Santa Claus movies are there? There are many, and they service those, those kind of interests. 
But is that what this is all about? Is that what we're getting ready for this afternoon as we head into the Christmas season? Are the deep Advent longings that compelled the ancients and us today to pray, Come, Lord Jesus, are those really just yearning for warm family feelings? Are the hopes and dreams of all the years, is that what those are? Or is there something more going on here? If only we had a Linus character who could step to center stage and clear it up for us. If only there were one person who could speak with eloquence and offer us a speech, maybe even drawing from Luke's gospel, to share with us, what is this all about? What is it that we're anticipating coming? Well, if we turn our ear to Luke chapter 1, verse 46, not B, but A, we read this. And Mary said, Mary said, challenge given and now accepted. Mary's song, the Magnificat, provides a snapshot of the meaning of Christmas from the vantage point of one of the earliest Christian witnesses. It's a snapshot that most assuredly made an impression on the gospel writer here, particularly on Luke, as he organizes what we know as Luke's gospel today. But the song itself is not crafted in a vacuum. Instead, the gospel narrative has Mary's song emerging from a period when she's staying in the home of a relative, a relative who just so happens to have her own miraculous story to tell, curiously, her own pregnancy. And Mary herself, at this point, also with an amazing pregnancy story to tell, offers a song that's reminiscent of a much earlier song, a song that goes to a woman named Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And though we might also say here that Mary's situation is as remarkable as it would be terrifying. Her situation is terrifying. I recall a young high school student in the church where I grew up at this time, she was a few years uh, younger than me, and I remember I was, I can't remember if I was in late high school or early college, but there was, a, there was a pregnancy that happened, and we all knew about it because she told us. And I don't know if it was the minister's idea if, or if her family alone felt that they had to get in front of the anticipated whispers that would happen in the church, but come Sunday morning, she stood in front of our congregation during worship, flanked by her parents, and shared about her new reality. She confessed her transgression, and she invited our prayers and our support. Talk about risky. Talk about risky. Every eye in the room is on you, and not all of them are kind. And this all happened in modern times, and from a modern audience. For an ancient like Mary, though, and particularly within the cultural context in which she lives, a mystery pregnancy holds the potential of reaping all manner of unkindness, to put it mildly. And this doesn't escape the mind of Joseph. We know that from Matthew's gospel, that he quietly thinks about maybe even divorcing her. The fact that Mary sees herself as blessed strikes us a bit odd in light of that cultural context, both our own and hers as well. As Judith Jones will observe here, the blessedness that Mary celebrates stands in stark contrast to our culture's attitude. By our standards, she does not look at all blessed. She is not from a family that can afford expensive food and clothing. She is a nobody, a peasant girl from a small village. Her friends and neighbors see her as a disgrace because she is unmarried and pregnant. Furthermore, as she will soon learn from Simeon, 
if she hasn't perceived it already, being the mother of the Messiah is scarcely an unmixed blessing. She will bear the unspeakable grief of watching as her son is rejected, shamed, and crucified. Quote, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, is what Simeon says to her in Luke chapter 2. But to hear the same Mary, the same person with all of the associated risk and potential backlash, meeting the news of her own pregnancy, not with woe is me, not I'm in trouble, but rather my soul magnifies the Lord. That says something about who she is. Faithful, strong character, tough as nails. Though she would not say as much about herself as we see in verse 48 based on her character, which is part of the beauty of who she is, part of the courage as well. But perhaps even more is what she imagines is coming with this birth, the birth of this child. And that something is what Rolf Jacobson writes when he says, a world-transforming, universe-shaking event. That's what's coming. That's what's coming in Luke chapter 2 and going forward. So what does Mary know here? Well, Jacobson gets all this from Mary's song. A song where we see that it begins in verses 46 through 48 with praise. She begins with praise. So if you're looking for a Christmas mood, you're saying, hey, what's the mood of Christmas? Not what Christmas is all about. What's the mood? How do I set the mood? Get some mood lighting, right? Light that Christmas tree up. Get those house lights on. But the mood of Christmas, praise, is a good place to begin based on Mary's model here. And we see as much in verse 46 where she magnifies. That's a habitual act. It's an ongoing act. She magnifies the Lord, and in verse 47, she rejoices. Though the language here is a little tricky. In, N in the NRSV, they go with rejoices, but a, a commentator like Leon Morris will argue here that it really should be rejoiced, as though a singular type event is in, in Mary's mind at this point. She might be looking back to that angelic visit and the pregnancy that was announced there. But she rejoices in God my Savior. Coupled with verse 48, here, Mary is a nobody from nowhere. She's a nobody from nowhere. But the meaning of Christmas draws on what she knows to be true of God. She knows that what has now been confirmed in the visit of the angel and that young life that's growing in her. If we were to fast forward to the, in the gospel story here, I'm reminded of an Isaac Watts hymn, and maybe you've heard this hymn before, where he writes, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? From the very beginning of the gospel story, not Luke 2, but Luke 1, Mary confirms the answer is yes. Yes, God would devote the sacred head even for the lowliest. And the remarkable thing about this is the one who really is quite somebody would too become a nobody from nowhere, and more for Mary, and for you, and for me. That's what Christmas is about. That's where we start in the story, but Mary's not finished yet. She's not done yet. That's just the first couple verses. In case the hearer might imagine that they misheard something in all of this. 
Maybe you misheard Mary in all of this. Or perhaps Mary has someone else in mind. Maybe she's thinking about, you know, Jolly St. Nick or something. Or even she's half-heartedly saying thanks. Just kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of grateful. I'm not, I'm not really like blessed in the capital B sense, but I'm more a hashtag blessed, right? I'm in, I'm in that camp. Think again. This is God, and this is what God is doing. That's verses 49 and 50, what she's saying. To borrow a title from a popular contemporary uh, praise song, we might say what Mary is saying here is God is mighty to save. That's actually, actually true. To borrow another song title, she's also saying God is able. So Mary marks out here the contours of the Savior. She says that Savior is mighty. That Savior is holy. And that Savior is merciful. Minded of her. Mindful of her. And not just for Mary, but from generation to generation, as we see in verse 50. It spans generations for all who fear God. Fear God, who revere God. Revere what God's doing. But if we were to say this is who God is and what God has done, what follows could easily be what God is up to right now in Mary's life. And what that is will be described, again going back to Leon Morris, he says, a complete reversal of human values. That's what the gospel is. That's what Christmas is. It's a reversal of human values. And that upending can be felt. As Michael Wilcock will observe, the song is one of the revolutionary canticles which inspire and are held to justify Christian participation in political liberation movements. Whole groups of Christians worldwide, not just in the southern hemisphere, but all over the place, have drawn inspiration and strength from Mary's song. They take those words, they champion them because they recognize that this is what the gospel is proclaiming, true liberation and freedom, lifting them up from their places, their lots, telling them they're not nobodies from nowhere, but that God is actually mindful of them and cares for them, just as God cares for each one of us. So not just here, the idea of reversals. We see in verses 51 through 53, there's those world-transforming, universal-shaking events. The proud, the powerful, the rich. These groups don't make it out well in the world that's coming. Though they certainly look to be all the rage in the world that is now. And how different these are from the picture of Mary herself. Think about those categories and how Mary looks so much different than that. She's humble, not proud. She's lowly, not exalted. She's not of any great means. She ends up having to deliver a baby in essentially a barn, a cave, in a manger. She's poor. This reversal and its implications have certainly not been lost on readers throughout the years, even amongst our contemporaries. J. Peter Nixon, who's a Catholic deacon who has contributed to a number of different publications, he expresses this sentiment when he writes this, and it's a sentiment I have to say here that as I read this and reread this and reread it again, I, I think he's right but I say so reluctantly. He writes this, Mary's song calls into question everything that I've achieved, everything that my daily actions suggest that I truly value. A new world is coming, one for which my life and bourgeois respectability may not, in the end, have adequately prepared me. Faced with such a future, is my prayer, come Lord Jesus, reflective of a deeply held desire, or is it more pious sentiment? If I search my heart, would I find that I truly prefer that the Lord not come, or at least not any time soon? 
It's an important question to ask ourselves. It's an important question that I think would make a great Advent pondering for us in our Advent journals. But Mary's words here also offer hope. There's a hopefulness in these words. They're not meant just to be, and I don't even know if they are meant to be, a condemnation. They're a celebration of what's coming, particularly for those who find themselves in a similar lot. And for those looking forward to that day, capital D here, when all of this comes into full bloom. Perhaps the way forward here is to see the power in what is expressed, as opposed to dismissing these words as being problematic. Victoria Reynolds Farmer reflects on her own journey with cerebral palsy and writes about the power of Mary's words, and she says this about them for her own life. She says, as a teenager felt like she didn't quite fit in her body, her school, or her world, I was deeply gratified by Mary's assertions that the power of God is made manifest in his inversions of worldly hierarchies. Someone who seemed mostly known for her meek adherence to God's plan, revealed in a radical vision of a God who takes care of those the world undervalues and humbles those the world elevates. This helped me recognize all parts of myself, spiritual and physical, as having been created in the image of God. Words changed her outlook transformed her thinking, reminded her that she had value, which are all important parts of the gospel's work in our lives. In fact, God's care for God's people takes center stage in verses 54 and 55. What is happening is in keeping with God's promises to God's people, that God indeed is faithful. There's a popular song, maybe you heard this song, by Mark Lowry. It was written in the, in the mid-80s, like around 1984 is when it was written, the lyrics uh, music was written, added to later in 1991 by Buddy Green. But it's a song that ponders how much Mary actually knew of what would come of her firstborn. The song, of course, is aptly named Mary Did You Know, right? You've heard this song before? There's actually a really good version of by the Pentatonics. Do a YouTube search. We'll be a sermon without a YouTube reference here. The Pentatonics have a very good version of that. It's been seen by a lot. I think that version's actually been seen by hundreds of millions of people. It seems that our Mary, although not knowing specifics, the Mary that we read in Luke chapter 1 here, she doesn't know specifics like walking on water and she doesn't maybe know about feeding multitudes. She hasn't seen those yet. But what does Mary know? She does know quite a bit. She knows what God is capable of and she knows that God is taking action even now in her life at that very moment. And if that were in doubt, go back and read Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, verse 35, verses 42 and following. All the texts that lead up to our text this morning. Mary knows something about what's going on. She knows the meaning of Christmas, which seems something far greater than what my small traditions oftentimes invite. She has a bigger picture in mind here. So my question this morning for all of us is, how about you? Perhaps you find your voice with your own tinge of exasperation, like Charlie Brown this holiday season. And as you move amongst the rampant commercialism, the economic uncertainty of our day, maybe even the political bantering, and the fear that shows up in so many different forms, fear of the future, fear of what's coming, even fear of others. In fact, The Atlantic just issued a, their January-February edition, if you saw this, it included a warning from the editor. The whole issue is dedicated to one political candidate. It has articles throughout 
all pointing to different aspects of that person. But it has a warning by the editor from the start. You're not supposed to read it in one sitting because of mental hygiene reasons, what the editor says. Our times have a lot of places where, for mental hygiene reasons, we're struggling. We face all kinds of challenge in this, this holiday season as well. In other words, we might say we're not too different from the ancients. We're not too different than them. And so at the risk of sounding like our siblings in Rome, at the risk of sounding like we might get too much into Mary here at this point, isn't Mary fantastic? Isn't she a fantastic witness for us this morning to remind us what the gospel is about and what's coming? Or to borrow the words of Mother Gothel in the 2010 Disney film Tangled, Mother Knows Best. Mother Knows Best. And though I'm impressed that this song was credited to a young person like Mary at the time, never underestimate young people and what God does through them. We have a Joel prophecy that tells us about that. Mary here is what Ben Self calls a beautiful conduit for God's grace in the world. It's important to allow this conduit's words here for us to speak that grace into our worlds as well at this moment. And when we do, here's what we hear in closing. That God cares about us. That God cares about you and me. That God is more than mindful of us, but has taken real action on our behalf and for our benefit. That what is coming, when we pray that prayer, come Lord Jesus, what is coming will be entirely new landscape, teeming with justice and life, and overflowing with righteousness. So much so that the only terms that we can use, if we use New Testament terms, is this, to capture it, because it defies our imagination. New creation. It's new creation. That this all is a continuation of the ancient promise. One that God continues and will continue to keep because God is faithful. And because of this, we like Mary rejoice in the one who has come. And we look for this same Jesus who will come again. We pray for it. We pray for that gospel disruption that would continue to reform our world even now in our lives. That it would transform our lives and thinking. That it would renew creation as that project has unfolded. And we pray all the while, come Lord Jesus. Perhaps now with more filling and force than we had known before we read and heard Mary's song. May it be so for our lives today and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for the great gift that is this song that we hear in Scripture. We thank you for the great gift that is your witness, Mary, and for her words, how they continue to ring out, even in our own generation. So, Lord, we pray that we would hear these words anew. We'd hear them in our lives and in our hearts, that they would resound in us as we unwrap gifts as we gather with family, as we set the lights on our homes and our trees ablaze. May the true light of Christmas shine brightly as these words continue to be pondered in our hearts, that we might give you all the praise and glory this day and forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.